morning. Uh, we're reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 13. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1212. Hebrews 13, and we're starting at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. So uh, just to get your thoughts on something, uh, there was some research done, being been done by uh, quite a few commentators actually, and they estimated how long it would have taken to preach this sermon. Because of course the letter to the Hebrews that we've been looking at um, is a letter, but it's, it's a sermon in letter form, isn't it? Um, as we've been thinking about in the past months. So I don't know if that's crossed your mind. How long would this have taken to preach? Because as we've, we started back in September last year going through Hebrews, we broke for Christmas and for various other things. But basically, we've been going since September. And in that time, have you thought about how long it would take for someone to preach it? I don't mean for someone to read it aloud, because you could probably do that relatively quickly. But if someone was, um, in proper preacher style, actually preaching through this and going for it, how long do you reckon it would take? So... Um, Let's do a show of hands. Hands up if you think roughly half an hour. You've got to commit to one of these options, by the way. Nobody's, okay. okay, so you're not optimistic as that short. Um, an hour. A few people think, okay, right. So hands up if you think more than an hour. All right. That's really interesting. Well, according to the research that's been done, I'm not sure exactly how this research was done. I'm guessing that maybe somebody stood up and literally tried to preach it as if they were preaching to a congregation, just under an hour. I don't know if that surprises you. A few, few sources say just under an hour. Now, um, I think if I preached for just under an hour this morning, which I'm not planning to, you wouldn't call it brief, would you? But that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews does. Did you notice that towards the end of the end of the letter that was read out to us this morning? In the, in the middle of the section that was read to us, actually, brothers and sisters... I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. He actually he said a few times during the letter, isn't he? Actually, we haven't got time to go into these things now. So he's been desperately cutting out material to keep this to a reasonable length. So at just under an hour, which is what it would be if it was preached aloud, he's referring to that as a brief word of exhortation. Tell me later whether you think that's brief or not. But the important word there, I think, is exhortation. I have written to you my word of exhortation. Have you ever wondered how the church that read this or had it read to them for the first time felt after the letter was read, after they'd heard this exhortation? Because that word exhortation is a pretty good word in English to translate the word here. Exhortation can be comfort, encouragement. Exhortation can be warning. And we've seen both things in this letter, haven't we? As the writer has been saying to them, come on, Jesus is better than anything else you might be tempted to trust in. Jesus is better, so keep going, keep looking to him, keep trusting him. As he's been saying, come on, he's been doing that by encouraging them 
and by giving them great comfort in Jesus, but also there have been some very dire warnings, haven't there? These have been the two threads that we've seen woven through this letter. Comfort for someone looking to Jesus, warning for someone who's thinking of wandering away from him. Have you thought about, or maybe you have actually been processing this in your own heart, how should a person respond to this? How have you been responding to this as you've been hearing the comfort, as you've been hearing the warnings? I mean, at the risk of really oversimplifying, I think that probably um, just a few types of people in the church of this day listening to this sermon. One type of person, I suppose, would be someone who was in the fellowship, doing Christian stuff, saying Christian things, but they weren't truly in their heart believing in the Jesus that this preacher is preaching about. Along with quite a few other people in the congregation, they're seriously thinking about walking away from all this Christianity stuff, and they're in a perilous position because their hearts haven't yet surrendered to him, And so the warnings of, for example, chapter 6 might well apply to them if they wander away. They might become so hardened that they cannot come back. That's one type of person, I guess. I suppose another type of person in the congregation, and maybe that's been someone here in recent weeks and months, is true believers who are hearing what's been said, but they're complacent, And they're also thinking of following this trickle of people out the door. And I'm sure that what happened was the warnings that were directed at those who hadn't yet bowed the knee to Jesus and were in danger of walking away. Those same warnings for those complacent Christians, I'm sure, I trust, I hope, and maybe it's done the same in this church in recent months, have brought them back from wandering away because of the challenges and the warnings in the letter. I'm sure there are also true believers in the congregation, just like here, I hope, who simply were looking to Jesus, trusting in him, weren't seriously thinking of wandering away, and they've just been nourished and encouraged, and they're rejoicing because the writer has been pointing them to Jesus, their great high priest, and their sacrifice, and they're just full of the joy of Jesus. So uh, I think that's all the categories done now. I, know, I, think there's, I think there's probably one more. And I think it's this person that in particular I want to speak to this morning. And I think this, this ending to the letter speaks to this person particularly this morning. And that is a true believer. And actually I think this is all of us at some point in our Christian walk. A true believer who has heard the letter and understood the sermon, a person who is looking in love and faith to Jesus, and yet they're worried that they don't have it in them to do what he's been telling them to do. He's been saying to them, in the face of the temptation, the pressure from society, the persecution you're facing from Jesus, the temptation to wander away from Jesus, don't wander away, keep looking to him, keep trusting in him, Keep looking to your glorious Jesus. And they're saying in response, I am, I am looking to my glorious Jesus. I do believe he's my only hope. I don't believe there's anything better than him, but I don't know if I've got it in me to keep running the race and keep trusting him. 
I do trust, but can I keep trusting? And in effect, what this last section of this sermon letter says to everybody, but especially to such a Christian, is this. You're worried you don't have it in you? You don't. But it's going to be okay. Are you worried you don't have it in you? You don't. But it's going to be okay. And here's why. And I think we see four main things. As he sums up, you'll see threads and themes from all the way through the letter, I think, in this closing part of the letter. But as he sums up everything they have in Jesus, I think he shows that they, that we as Christians have four things in particular. And the first thing we have is peace. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you. But it starts there, doesn't it, with the God of peace. This is sometimes described, this last pit of the letter to the Hebrews, as a prayer. Um, but strictly speaking, it's not a prayer, is it, if you look at it? Because a prayer is directed to God, isn't it? Our Father in heaven. When you pray to God, when you address him, that's a prayer. So strictly speaking, this isn't a prayer. Because these words are directed at the congregation. He's saying to them, now may the God of peace do the following things. This is the sort of thing you see in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 6, that famous blessing that God gives the high priest to pronounce upon the people. That great benediction he gives. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That is a blessing that God gives to the priest to pronounce over the people. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing here. This is a blessing. This is a benediction. More about this as we close a little bit later on. But hang on to that distinction. Yes, it's a prayer in a really important sense, isn't it? Because the writer wants something from God for the people. But strictly speaking, it's a blessing he's pronouncing on the people. And because of that, he starts with the God who is going to do the blessing, the God of peace. This is actually a title of God given by the Old Testament. In the story of Gideon, we read that Gideon says, the Lord is peace. God is a God peace. As we'll see, and as we've seen all the way through the letter, that does mean that God is a God who gives peace. But I think it's even more fundamental than that. I think I agree with John Frame, for example, when he says this is basically peace, an attribute of God. Because even if there wasn't a fallen world over which he needed to pronounce his peace, God would be peace, wouldn't he? I mean, we know all sorts of different people, and I, know, I think we know some people who are relatively at peace with themselves. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, they're relatively comfortable. There's not constant conflict and strife going on. They're quite comfortable in their own skin. Some people we know, maybe it's us, we're not comfortable with ourselves at all. And then there's a a range of positions along the spectrum between those two extremes. God, because of who he is, is totally and utterly at peace with himself. Because of the glorious and perfect God that he is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For eternity past, before there was a world, had peace amongst themselves. In the unity of the one God. God is a God of peace because he is totally at peace with himself. You know, humanity, the Bible tells us, is at war with God. 
and humanity is at war with itself. You don't need to look at your news feeds and social media to see that. But he is the God who wants to share his peace and give his people his peace through what he's done in his son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This peace with God was, was won at the cross. Uh, we see this um, in lots of places, but um, especially we see it in Romans chapter 5. These glorious words in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus and your sins are washed away, you are justified, you then have peace with God. Back in chapters 8 and 9 of this letter, the, the writer has been outlining how it is God has won that peace for us by sending his son to die as a sacrifice to bear away the sins of those who trust in him. It's a big chunk of this letter, how God has won this peace for us. But the thing is, and this is what you need to hear, Christian, and especially if you're a Christian who's wondering whether you can do it and whether you can keep on following and keep on trusting, you have this peace in Jesus. You know, we seek peace in so many places, don't we? In so many things. Maybe, maybe you look for peace in your relationships. Maybe you look for it in your belongings. You've got that sort of level of security that you can have that, that inward peace. All sorts of things that people look to to find and to feel peace. But there is total peace. And it is total peace. Found in only one place. And that is in God himself. Acting through the life and death and resurrection of his son. And it's a lasting peace. And here's the second thing. The other thing we see in this closing passage. They have peace in Jesus. And the, the other thing they have is permanence. This peace was won for the Christian through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you. He's done this. He's brought peace through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now the blood there is speaking of the death of Jesus on the cross. And what that death of Jesus on the cross has done has brought us is, yes, forgiveness. But do you remember the, the, the picture, the reality that the writer has been talking about again and again in this book? That this is a covenant thing that God has done. A covenant relationship we've come into. A covenant is an agreement that is based on solemn promises. We're going to see one next Saturday between Joshua and Fion. A solemn covenant is entered into. They make vows in the presence of God and the witnesses. God has done that to us, his people. He has entered into a covenant with us based on promises that he has vowed to keep. Steph preached to us about that some time ago now. And because God, through the death, the blood of his only son, has allowed us through faith in Jesus to enter into this covenant relationship with him, we are now in this eternal covenant. That word eternal and the idea of eternity has cropped up again and again in this letter too. Just 
let me remind you of a few verses that we've previously heard where this truth of eternity rings out. Chapter 5, verse 9. Once made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He became the source of eternal salvation. About chapter 9, verse 12, listen to these words. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, that's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross, for sinners like you and me, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And verse 14 of the same passage. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so we may serve the living God. You've got that word eternal there again. And then verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, the better covenant, the covenant we're talking about here, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christian, you are in a, a covenant relationship with Almighty God who has made promises and vowed by his own name to keep those promises, you are locked into this eternal covenant that is made by and sealed by, by nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. You are in that covenant relationship with him. You are in the eternal covenant. And by the way, this eternal covenant is eternal. It stretches to eternity in both directions doesn't just mean you're in the eternal covenant and you will be forever. It stretches back into eternity as well. We are part of something through faith in Jesus that precedes uh, angels and time and space and, and everything. We are part of something that precedes everything that exists other than God himself. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Before the foundation of the world, he was chosen to be your salvation, Christian. And these words from Revelation 13, verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. If you want to know more on that, listen to our series on Revelation. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The cross is no plan B where God scrambles to rescue people who've sinned against him and he didn't foresee it. The death of Jesus was planned, was as good as done before the creation of the world. This eternal covenant that you were part of, Christian, began in eternity past. Has no beginning. That's how great the covenant is that you are now in through faith in Jesus. Do you see the picture? The peace that's ours won't end because the covenant won't end. The covenant won't end because it's sealed with the blood of the precious one of God. 
The peace won't be lost because the intercession of Jesus won't be lost. He is a priest forever. Chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 19. He will save to the uttermost, chapter 7, verse 25, those who believe in him. You see, we have peace with God and this peace is a permanent peace. And when God says something is permanent, it's permanent. It makes me laugh. We talk about permanent things in this life, don't we? Great, I now have my, I've, I've put an offer in on the house. I've got this place. I'm not planning on moving anywhere. I've got it. It's permanent. Getting married next week, praise God. That's permanent. Nah. We, we look for permanence in this life, don't we? And we will never find it. But in Jesus, we have true, lasting permanence. We long for something truly lasting, and in Jesus we have it. Not just the better country, the, the city with foundations, the new creation that we look forward to as Christians. No, more than that, more important than the new creation, the one who is at the center of it, the triune, covenant-making God, we now have him, and we cannot lose him. We have him forever. You know, when we get good things, we want to make them last, and we fear losing them. And this we don't need to fear losing. Everything else in life will pass and fade Nothing we have in Jesus will. Not through all the ages of a beautiful future before his face. We have peace, we have permanence, we have protection. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. We thought about briefly about that last time. Jesus here is described as the great shepherd of the sheep our protector, our leader, because that's what a shepherd did in that culture. He protected the flock and he walked out ahead of the flock and he led them. God is our shepherd. In the Old Testament, we see this time and time again, not least in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But God is our shepherd, yes. That's not the Father only. The promised Messiah is also our shepherd. In Zechariah's prophecy, he keeps contrasting the bad shepherds the fallible shepherds who were trying to lead Israel with God as shepherd. And there's some stuff there in chapter 9 of Zechariah, actually, that speaks about the coming Messiah and him coming riding on the colt of a donkey. More about that next week. The point is that God is our shepherd and Jesus, the Son of God, is our shepherd. He is the better Moses. You know, Moses was the shepherd of Israel. But Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, remember? We see this back in chapters 3 and 4 of this letter. Jesus is the better shepherd, the great shepherd, who will always lead, feed, and protect us and never let us down. He is the one, like Moses and Joshua, but better, who has led us out of captivity and into the promised land and will protect us all the way along the way. So as I'm saying these things, you know that in Jesus we have peace, we have permanence, we have protection. Possibly someone nonetheless right now is still thinking, but what if I fail to heed the exhortation of the writer here? If I fail to keep looking to him, if I fail to stay close to him as my shepherd, what if I wander away from under his protection. I'm looking to him right now this morning, Matt. I love him. I'm trusting him. But what if? 
I mean, that's a question, by the way, that someone who is complacent and doesn't really care, or someone who's contemptuous about the Christian faith, absolutely should ask, what if? But what of those who are genuinely concerned and soft-hearted? Do you remember we, we said some weeks ago, I've said on a few occasions now, that this letter, and actually God's word as a whole, is meant to disturb the comfortable, the complacent. But it's meant to comfort the disturbed. And that's what this letter does. For this peace, this permanence, and this protection in Jesus is offered to all, including the complacent person who's on the verge of wandering away. But for the person looking to him right now, there are promises that are so, so deep and solid. And there's a reality here in this closing benediction that shows us, if the first three things haven't, that for the person looking to Jesus, they can know they'll be okay and they'll make it home. And this fourth thing is, is the power that we see in this passage. We have power within us when we believe in Jesus. And now we finally got, I don't know if you realize this, we finally got to the main point of the benediction here. Because most of what we've just been talking about is, is a glorious parenthesis. Now may the God of peace, he starts to say, doesn't he? Now may the God of peace. And then he doesn't say straight away what he wants the God of peace to do for them. He just talks more about who the God of peace is and what he's done. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And then verse 21, we get to the point. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch that? Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us. As he talks about you and us, he's in it together with them. He knows that God will equip them and work in them so that they will keep on believing and do what is pleasing to God. God has covenanted to save and to cleanse and to make holy those who believe and keep on believing in his son. I get that from this letter so far. But I in my weakness can be fearful that I might not keep believing because I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. I don't have what it takes to keep on believing in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, in the face of persecution. And in, in facing the reality of my own entangling sin, which Tom preached to us about a few weeks ago from Hebrews 12, running the race with endurance. In the face of all those things, I can quite naturally start to think, yeah, but I might slip out of the covenant through my weakness. I get what you're saying, that in Jesus I have peace. I get what you're saying, that the covenant is a permanent covenant, that God's not going to change his mind about his covenant. I get what you're saying, that Jesus is my great shepherd and he will protect me, but I might slip out of the covenant through my own weakness, mightn't I? And if that's you, Christian, if you're looking to Jesus and trusting him this morning and you're worried that that's, that's you, the answer of the writer to that question, might I not slip out of his covenant, is no, you won't because God in his grace 
doesn't just bring us into the covenant, but gives us the power to keep our side of the covenant. This is why letters in the New Testament so often close with the words that this letter closes with, grace be with you all. This is his benediction upon them. This is what he wants them to know that he wants for them, God's grace. That little word that unfortunately becomes Christian jargon when it's one of the most wonderful words in the Bible. Grace, the undeserved goodness of God towards sinners and his power at work in sinners. That's what's been talked about here when he says, may the God of peace equip you for everything good and may he work in us. He's talking about grace. He equips us to do what he calls us to do. He works in us so that we can do his will. And when we read there, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, that the words there for doing his will are the same word as the word for work. The picture is here that God, by his grace, works in us so that we can keep on working. And the work he's talking about is not good works that earn our salvation. The work he's talking about is faith. He works in us so that we keep trusting in him. Now, this power at work within us doesn't take away the need for us to work and for us to do. This is a letter that's full of imperatives, exhortations, commands, things he tells us to do. We can't be passive. We must do these things. But when we start to despair that we don't have the strength to do these things, his word comes in and says, may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us. Our security is not rooted in our ability. Praise God. I would not be stood here before you. See, experientially, personally, you know, this is why I know this is true. I mean, I know it's true because it's God's word, but this is why I know it's true. And I'm not exaggerating. This isn't hyperbole. If this wasn't true, I would not be stood here testifying to you this morning that I'm a Christian and I trust in Christ. I'd be lost. I'd have walked away. I'd have given up either because of my own sin and complacency or because of hard things in life, for one reason or another, I'd have given up and walked away if it wasn't for this grace. To the Christian hearing the exhortations of this letter, hold on, keep going, keep running the race, keep looking to Jesus. To that Christian who says, I don't know if I can, the benediction says, this blessing says, you can. You can't in and of yourself, but you can Because God's grace is at work within you. How do you know God's grace is at work within you? Because you're trusting him this morning. And if you're trusting him this morning, his grace will keep on working in you and won't stop. This is pleasing God. Equip you with everything good for doing his will that he may work in us what is pleasing to him. We thought about this previously. Yes, Christian, you please God. Not because you've polished up the best of your good works and they've impressed him. No, you please him because you trust Jesus and you're in Jesus. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And so then everything you do for Jesus pleases the Father's heart. Everything you do in this life of faith. This is talking about you holding on to the faith and trusting all the way till you get to the end of the race till you get to the finish line. And this is talking about everything that you do along the way. It is all ultimately of grace. 
So yes, this is saying to you, if you're worried about your faith lasting, it will last by God's grace. You will get to glory. But it's, it's talking about your whole life until then, Christian. Right now, this morning, this week, God's grace, his powerful, undeserved energy working within the Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's grace is enough to do those things that otherwise people can't do. Grace at work in us works what is otherwise impossible. So, Christian, when you're thinking, I I can't overcome this sin. I can't do it. You're right, you can't. But God's grace working in you can and will. You've got to believe that it will. As you keep praying that this would be true for you, and as at the end I pronounce this benediction over you, you've got to believe that you can defeat that undefeatable sin because God's grace is at work in you. When you think the marriage is just getting too hard. You're both Christians, you both love Jesus, but it's just getting too difficult. I'm not sure the marriage can be salvaged. It can because God's grace is powerfully at work within you, Christians. When you say that relationship's dead, there's just no point trying anymore. I, you know, I've fallen out with that other believer and it can't be repaired. It can because of grace. Or maybe you're thinking this morning, I, I've known joy in Jesus and I'm still trusting in Jesus, but there's so little of that experience of joy left in my heart. Can it come back? The answer is yes, because God is at work in you by his grace. Are you thinking, I can't keep serving for <laughs> X more years, or even months, or even weeks? You can't. You haven't got it in you. But you've got the Holy Spirit in you, who is God's power at work within you, working God's saving, changing, transforming, powerful grace. That's why Paul said things like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he, Paul actually reported to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, that he heard God saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. This is grace. Grace is massively, irresistibly powerful. Grace is not a bit of help. Grace is not a bit of fairy dust sprinkled on our faith. Grace is not just a warm feeling. Grace is the all-powerful God doing everything in and through Jesus and everything in us that needs to be done for us to get to glory and to please God as we're running the race with endurance. This is why the writer pronounces grace at the end. Grace be with you all. Grace past Grace present, grace future. We've been saved by grace. We are being saved by grace. We will be saved by grace. We are being helped in all we face by grace. We will be helped in all we face in the future by God's grace. It's a never-ending well. There is and there will be grace to face that trial, that illness, that job situation. There will be grace even, we're promised, to face our death with peace and joy. I don't have that in me. Well, I do, actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you know, intrinsically in me, I haven't got it in me, and neither of you. But by grace, 
we can face these things and come through them with joy. That's why it's so significant that this is a benediction rather than a prayer. Do you, do you see that? It would be wonderful if it was a prayer. Paul said, I'm praying this for you. But it's more than that. It's a benediction. These are things to which we always have God's yes in Jesus. So, as we're trying to run the race with endurance, this side of glory, we, we might pray, um, Lord, would you heal me of this? And sometimes God's answer is, I love you, but no. And sometimes his answer is, I love you, and yes. Or maybe the prayer is, Lord, you're going to give me this job. I just want this job. It just seems right for me. Will you give me this job? Sometimes his answer will be, I love you and yes. And sometimes it will be, I love you, but no. But when you say to God, as you're looking to Jesus in faith, Lord, will you give me the grace to get to the end of the race? Will you get me the glory? He, he doesn't ever say, I love you, but no. He never says that. We know it because it's a benediction. Because God has given these words for the writer to pronounce upon the church. His answer to that question, will you give me the grace to get me home, is always yes. You can pronounce it over yourself, believer. You can pronounce it over the person next to you in the seat. Sue can pronounce it over the end of the service. I'm going to pronounce it over you as I close in a moment. Grace is the power that will get us through by faith. You could almost sum up this book and the whole New Testament with the words, faith in Jesus by the grace of God. And when you get there, when you get to glory, which you will, believer, who gets the credit for that? Is it 99% God and 100% you? No, 100% God, 100% Jesus. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you end this great letter with reminding us that you're the God of peace. You could have closed it by reminding us that you are a consuming fire, that you are the judge, the almighty one, and all those things would be true, but you end it by reminding us you're the God of peace. You could have closed it, Lord, with a an exhortation and a challenge to the believers not to be complacent and to hold on and to keep looking to Jesus, just like you've, you've been doing all through this letter. And we thank you for those exhortations. But you didn't close it there, Lord. You closed it with these words of blessing and benediction, which are effectively your promise to us that you will equip us with everything good for doing your will. And you will get us home. Thank you for this letter, Lord. Thank you for the close to this letter. Thank you for this benediction. We want to give all the thanks and the praise and glory to Jesus Christ, to whom will be glory forever and ever. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.